Hello and welcome to another week of review to Dell's Geoengineering. Uh, this week I'm in the studio and Andrew is our roving reporter in his car, roving around the green and pleasant countryside. Sunny, the sunny M1 in the dark. It's lovely. <laughs> the sunny M1. I'm driving up the M1. <laughs> driving up the M1. Flying new depths of unprofessionalism. Very, very glamorous of you. Um, it's very glamorous. I'll show you that. Yeah. Well, I've tried to put the gloss on, but you know, I failed. Um, so this week we've got a load of news for you, um, some interesting things, um, some things that people might not find interesting, but we find interesting. And, um, and we don't care if you find it interesting or not. We, we find it interesting. So that's what we're going to talk about. That's because we're a reviewer too, and we just don't care at all, really. We just get our big red pen out. Um, right. <laughs> I'm going to kick off, Andrew. And so this week there's been a, a report by Delphi in the Wilson Centre with essays on solar geoengineering from Simon Nicholson and Oliver Morton, two stalwarts in the field. Um, I haven't read them, but... Who are the Wilson Centre? Have you, have you heard of them? I can't remember. I think it's it the Woodrow Wilson Centre. Oh, right. Okay. So it's an American thing, right? I think it's an American thing, yeah. Um, so they've, they've got a couple of essays on there, which I haven't read, but uh, maybe we'll get back to... Um, well, what does it say? About geoengineering, the geopolitical challenges of geoengineering and the challenge of geoengineering to geopolitics. There's an awful lot of geos in there. And that's... Yeah, it's like a tad bit like a game of fuzzy duck, the geoengineering version. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so it's, it's a geopolitical essay and uh, it talk about Simon Crutzen and really just about the challenges that it directs. So, I mean, Oliver Morton is, for people who don't know, is the briefings editor at The Economist. Um, I still speak. He's a very interesting talker, uh, speaker. He's a lot more than just that, though. He's written, he's written um, a yes. book about geoengineering, uh, The Planet Remade, which is yes. rated to be probably the best book on geoengineering that anyone's ever written. He is quite a notable writer and a bit of a polymath. It's hard not, hard not to admire the guy. Absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, he's written this, this, this article full of geos. So that was released on the, it's the 21st century diplomacy, the Wilson Centre. And also in the same series, Simon Nicholson has done a, an article. What is this article saying, Claire? Solar radiation management. He's done his article on, um, and he... And what does it say? He starts it off, he's basically saying it's an idea born of desperation, which I think the you and I would probably concur with. And it, I think it's just... It certainly is. Yeah. I read, uh, I was reading today, I didn't, I don't have a proper link for this because it was just like a conference tweet. But I was reading today that it was a, a, a feminist conference that had a bit about geoengineering and it was this same sort of like neo-Marxist thing that Kevin Surprise didn't like in our deep dive that we did with him. When he sort of, the, the, the central argument was that it allows us to sustain doing bad things and, and you know, put off this day of reckoning when we must all repent from our sins. Um, and, you know, that argument's quite popular on the left, really, but I'm not, I'm not personally terribly convinced by it, but I just thought I'd interject with that random bit of geo-trivia. Well, he's got, um, Simon's got a lovely couple of graphs, I do like a graph, and it's sort of what time versus climate impacts, and there's this fantastic red line goes up of business as usual, it's hyperbolic, you know, a hyperbolic line that just goes up off in the distance, and so he's drawn that with a sort of a bridge to CO2 removal, so Basically, he's positing solar geoengineering as the bridge to CO2 removal because we... That's the Shepherd concept, isn't it? Shepherd's, yeah. Long and Shepherd's Bridge from yeah. Youngsco. That was its, it launched at Asilomar. And actually, you mentioned Paul Crutzen. I actually met Crutzen at Asilomar. 
Um, and uh, he's knocking on a bit now. He's 86, but still, still upright. It's good. Um, that's good. I was reading about in in that big fat textbook that I showed you. I was reading about um, how how economists basically. Your very clever person textbook. Yeah, my very clever person textbook. I'll be very clever once I've read it. The economists can't add up the costs of climate change, so they just kind of gave up in the end, really, and they just couldn't decide. Yeah, well, I was I was talking about on the yeah I was talking about that with um uh, with uh, Steve Smith, wasn't I? About uh, about infinite damage functions, um, or was it not? Was it not Steve Smith? One, no, it wasn't Steve Smith. That was the Oxford Principles guy. Who was the guy that was doing that? I'm terrible for names. I'm really embarrassing myself here. Who was the guy that did the interview on the carbon uh, shares? Um, Derek Moyne. Is that right? Yeah. Yay! I got it right. Ten points to me. Um, yeah, we uh, we were talking about infinite damage functions and stuff like that and and so if you want a bit more depth on that then check out our interview with Derek Moy. It's pretty good. I listened to it, I listened back to it last night. I thought it was quite it was all right. I listened to all of them. They're all wonderful, Andrew. Yeah, I listened back to them. They're quite tolerable. I don't I mean that's just maybe it's just narcissism on my part. I just like hear myself <laughs> in the in, in my ears. My my own silken tones. It's like admiring yourself in the mirror, isn't it? Listen back to your own podcast. But I, <laughs> I don't mind it. It doesn't spoil my week doing it. So yeah. Anyway, I've broken your flow. What were you on about? No, no, I mean, yeah, I'm just, he, it's, a, it's a good article. It's, it's very accessible. Um, and uh, it talks about governance as well. And he mentions a study published in this year by Susan Binias and Daniel Bodansky, who's one of my faves. That said there's no obvious one-stop shop for governance for SRM. And I think a lot of people are starting to look at this now about sort of a polycentric kind of governance or, you know, top down. Yeah, I did a, I did a paper on that and it was a, um, uh, it's completely ignored and it was really annoying because I, I actually, I got a bit flat when I was writing because I showed it to a couple of people and they were like, this is nonsense. And I was like, no, it's not. It's actually all right. It's quite a reasonable idea. Basically, the idea is that everyone gets a bit of SRM, like all the countries in the world get a bit of SRM and they don't, they don't have to use it but they can use it if they want. And then if everybody does it, then it will take you back to the maximum amount of SRM that you conceivably want to do. But if you decide that you don't want to use your SRM, you don't have to. And the idea is that all the countries will just choose their own level of SRM within their limits. And it kind of adds up to a you know reasonably logical whole. Which I, I don't think that was a particularly stupid idea, but obviously everybody else did because no one cited it. Or maybe just no one read it. Um, but that's a, the usual fate of academic papers that don't get cited very much is that no one ever reads them in the first place. But I thought it was a reasonable idea. But anyway, back to proper people with proper research that we actually need to talk about because it's good rather than us plugging our own work. No, this is this is really good. I mean, it's it's it, it, it's it's a wonderful paper because it's um, the sum looks because it talks about governance and law and you know it mentions the Oxford principles as well. Um, Are those the new Oxford principles or um, the old Oxford principles? The old Oxford principles. The um, old Oxford principles, yeah, the solid geoengineering ones, not the yeah. carbon ones that we had Steve Smith to talk uh, about. So, and and also in conjunction with those two fantastic articles that I think everyone should read um, if they're interested, because they're, so they're so accessible but also like nicely in depth. Um, the same. Are you going to put them in the notes to the podcast uh, so people can actually find them? It's all going to go in the notes, darling. All of the notes. Um, well, it's also done a paper, well, it's more than a paper, I think it's a report called Foreign Policy is Climate Policy. Now, I haven't read this, um, but it does look very interesting. It's never, it's never, it's never stopped us before. Well, it's 183 pages long, so that would have been quite a big read. 
it's it's I will read it at some point, but it looks. Oh, that was yeah, that was a that was um written by loads of different people. It was a series of little articles. Um, um, so and that's that those two are those two articles are in there, but as a sort of the geoengineering bit, but the 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 whole yeah. Talks about Martin. Uh, I remember that it was a pretty, and they had some pretty good people writing that. Yeah, yeah. I came about three weeks ago, so that shouldn't be on today's news broadcast. That's just us being slow. Yeah, probably. Or you being slow with your reading. It was only three weeks. Have you got any actual? Have you got any actual news rather than fawning over a paper that came out three weeks ago? Come and finish your thought, please, darling. What? (laughs) That's just saying. Come and finish your thought, even if it's too old. Um, as a lot of people like me and like you will have it as an open tab or as I must look at that soon. So, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the black hole of browser tabs, all yeah. those things that you promise yourself you're going to read one day but never actually do. I once read this thing that said a woman's mind is like an iPad with 2,700 tabs open. I'm like, yep, that's about right. <laughs> I'm saying nothing. <laughs> I can say that, but it's okay. Um, so the next thing on the agenda, there's a couple of things about... Wow. Sorry about that. There's a couple of things about mines. One is about um, pulling amounts, pulling carbon dioxide out of the air, and uh, that's in the technology review. And it's um, it's about asbestos could be a powerful weapon against climate change. And yeah, that is in the MIT technology review. That's one of your likes. I'm going to let you talk about asbestos and mines and climate change because that's not really my area. No, I, I read through that. I was trying to get my head around exactly how that was supposed to work. I mean, I, I, I would have thought you'd want to do that as in vessels. So you heat it up, raise the pressure and process it quite quickly. But, but from what I recall, that article has relatively scant technical detail about how this was going to be achieved. Um, apparently, that asbestos is just lying around the surface, though. So reacting to carbon dioxide to make it not asbestos anymore is probably quite a good idea because it doesn't sound like having asbestos blowing in the wind although it sounds a little bit like a bob dylan song it doesn't actually uh um it doesn't sound appealing to me okay um so the, the next one was a co2 sequestration in mine tailings and it talks about ultramafic mine waste i love this stuff oh i know you love this stuff i'm so glad you yeah know. this is phil this is phil this is phil renforth's gig isn't it like phil renforth's all over this he's a quite a good egg i think um and he's got a lab uh, well, he was. He used to be in Wales, I think it was Cardiff, and I met one of his lab, um, uh, the PhDs from his lab, and she was quite a good egg too. I thought. Um, I don't. I think he moved on from there. I think he's at Harriet Watt, but I'm not sure. So what I picked um, up. Yeah, he's done some really interesting work on black heaps and stuff. Uh, this is a. This is from the Mineral Deposit Research Unit, and it's about trapping greenhouse gases, obviously carbon dioxide, into tailing storage. Well, that, that's really interesting. I mean, I've seen a load of presentations on that. There seems to be two schools of thought. So you either inject fairly concentrated CO2 into the mine waste mm. um, to dispose of the mine's own emissions, which is you know, a relatively unambitious way of doing it. But the, the point about the mine, so mine tailings are what's left of the ore after you've extracted the active ingredient that you want. And then overburden is just the rock that you've moved out of the way. Yeah. But, Apparently, mine overburden, and I think I might have made this point before, but um, I think mine overburden, apart from fresh water, is the biggest thing that humanity moves by mass, right? And so if we can do anything to utilise that overburden, then that's you know, it's good news because we're getting rid of a waste product, but also 
there's a huge amount of it there that we can usefully use to, to get rid of um, the carbon dioxide that's in the environment, right? It's a lot of, you know, a lot of materials, a good starting point. Um, but the, a lot of it seems to be quite unambitious. You're sort of pumping diesel generators fumes into big piles of rock rather than trying to expose that rock to the atmosphere and grind it up in the sea and all of the things that you do if you want to kind of use it more um, more aggressively and try and react or, you know, use all of the reactivity in that mine tailings. But I, I was trying to do a project actually with, looked at doing it with various people to do a proper audit of all of these mine tailings and stuff around the world. But I, you know, it's a pretty big project. That, but they, yeah. this is not I mean held anywhere central that you can use for the access it so it's um it's a challenge to, to do it and I, I hope that someone might connect with us um and say yes i'm really interested in doing that project too and we can work out a way of doing it is it is it is it part of is it one of the things in project drawdown do you know because i remember project drawdown but i can't remember what it's about it's, it's embarrassing it, project drawdown is, is, is marvelous actually that it's um a kind of a list of all the things that we could do and what kind of contribution they might be able to make. So it's a... It's a Who, who's done that? A bit like the McKinsey report, but not by McKinsey. Uh, no, 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 it's bigger than that. Um, who is it? It's a non-profit. I, do you know what? I don't know who it is, but it's a, it's a lot of different people. It's a huge sort of project. Uh, initially developed by Paul Hawke and Amanda Ray. Well, perhaps perhaps you ought to come back to that when we've actually done some proper research on it so that we don't just waste time purpling about something yeah, we don't no. know about. It's, it's, but anyway, the, the, the mine tailings people that you mentioned at the start of this, that, they, that we've asked them to come on the show. So mine tailings people, if you are listening, can you please get back to me and respond to my tweet and come on the show? Because we really want to hear about your mine tailings project. Thank you. Okay. Um, I, do, I have read about Project Jordan because I've got the book. So basically it has all the solutions that we might be able to have and what they could possibly contribute to reduction of greenhouse gases coastal and ocean sinks, buildings, transport, electricity, agriculture, industry, health and education, etc, etc. So I'm, I'm, I, I'll probably have a look at that later and see whether mine tailings comes into that. Um, thinking about big pieces of rock, I'm going to segue using that, but um, there was a very small article that I found in some kind of local news thing that said that uh, there's somebody called Oxy Low Carbon Ventures and Rasheen Capital Management of, uh, they've, they're going to build... Oxy Low Carbon Ventures are the people that back the Permian Basin project That's for... Um, about the Permian Basin. For carbon engineering. One of the other books I'm reading at the moment is talking is, is about the, the whole fracking resolution uh, and how the Permian Basin is such a massive area of Texas and New Mexico. Um, and I just find it interesting that they're going to do direct air capture over the top of the, the gigantic fracking Permian Basin. Yeah, I can't point to... And a map. Where, where exactly is the Permian Basin? Oklahoma or something? I can't remember. No, no, I think no. it begins in, with O. It's in an area beginning with O, isn't it? Texas and New Mexico is the Permian Basin, I believe. Yeah, that's where I thought it was. But doesn't it? Isn't there a, a, a name, near a name of a town called O or a county called O or something like that? It begins with an O. I'm not sure. And I mean, there's another uh, whole basin type thing further up north in the states. I can't call where it okay. is. Idaho. Idaho. There's a big fracking place in Idaho, yeah. Isn't that, that's wind country, isn't it? My well, US geography is terrible. Idaho's sort of in, you know, it's a flyover state, isn't it, they call them? Yeah, flyover states, rather rudely, I think. It's not, yeah, not so how people in them want to be referred to. There's not much to recommend it, hence the flying over it. But so. it's interesting, I, it, yeah, this um, leads me on nicely to, um, there was uh, some, uh, a vote amongst the 
one of the Indian tribes, or uh, Amerindian tribes, or First Peoples tribes, or whatever you're supposed to call, refer to them as now, uh, talking about their, um, they voted to shut their coal plant, I think. Uh, it might have been Navajo tribe, I'm not sure. Um, Thank you, they recently, they, they, vote, they, they voted to transfer to a renewables economy and take the hit from shutting down their coal plant, which is apparently making quite a bit of money. So um, that's interesting. The whole just transitions concept in space is kind of cool. Um, not directly CDR, but CDR, I guess, could be a part of it. Um, one of the things that's reasonably interesting is there's um, uh, there was a, a post an article today on Twitter about the um, Humber cluster in the UK, which I think is where, no, it's not the where the carbon engineering project is going. It's where, um, that, that's in Scotland, the the Bex project for Drax feeds into the more, um, the broader Humber CCS cluster. And I didn't realise the two were linked until I read it this morning. Um, but apparently all the CCS infrastructure for Drax, which is a bioenergy and carbon capture, with carbon capture and storage plant is linked to the more general carbon capture and storage um, equipment um, and grid infrastructure for um, the Humber cluster in the UK. So that's definitely one to watch. If, if that if that works and you know is delivered economically, that's a good example of you know just transition stuff because you've got power station repurposed to do geoengineering power via Bex supporting an industrial cluster of CCS, which I think is involved, it lands quite a bit of gas, I think, from what I recall. And so there's some hydrogen manufacturing in that area. I can't remember the details, but it's it's an interesting project to watch. Yeah, definitely. Um, there you go, that looked like I've done some prep there, but I haven't really. <laughs> um, Have you finished or can we go to the next thing? Oh, we can go to the next thing. So the next one that I've put down, I mean, literally in a random order, but eruptions and emissions cause changes in ocean carbon sinks. And this is, this is quite interesting. Um, it talks about the, how the, the capacity of the ocean to take up to carbon was reduced um, due to the eruption of uh, Mount Pinatubo. Yeah, that was interesting. But I think that the, the way that that was described was actually a bit wrong. Because if you read it in detail, and this, this, the basic physics of this is how you'd expect it to be, that the Pinatubo increased the uptake of carbon and then it decreased it as the temperature went back up again. So obviously you've got, when you cool the ocean, it's like, um, like coke, right? So the, the carbon dioxide dissolves well in coke. So um, when it's cold, so you get a nice can of coke and it's busy and cold. But when that coke's been heated up, it goes flat and it's horrible, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a similar process of carbon dioxide in the ocean in that when it's cool, when the ocean's cooled, then it absorbs more carbon into the ocean. I see. So um, it's the effect of the, of, the, of the explosion of the... the um, eruption. Yeah, the eruption. Um, and that just cooled so, it down. I mean, it's not, yeah, okay. yeah, so you get an increase and then a decrease, right? Um, but they only seem to report half of that. And now I'm pretty sure that's how it worked, but I may have misunderstood the paper. Well, I've actually done some work on this in the past. So I have studied this with some degree of enthusiasm. It's um, one of my papers with sadly the late although very young Janine Sargoni um, that was a, an op-ed that we did and I did a, um, uh, a paper about the voluntary carbon market and uh, yeah the paper that I did 
um, was uh, the op-ed that I did was about um, cooling the oceans down with solar radiation management to um, draw carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, which acts as an ocean, it, it enhances ocean acidification, but it, that, the flip side of that is that it reduces global warming because more of the carbon ends up in the ocean and less in the air, right? So, um, and the idea was that you could monetize that by getting carbon credits for solar geoengineering. So carbon credits are relatively expensive to generate, solar geoengineering is relatively cheap. So in theory, you could use the cheap solar geoengineering to cool the planet suck the carbon dioxide down into the oceans and then claim a carbon credit because a lot of that ends up locked in the deep ocean it doesn't really come out so um as long as you do it um uh you know at least a component would end up being i can't remember what the it's downwelling isn't it i was thinking of subduction but it's that's rocks but the idea being that the the deep water then holds your carbon dioxide and it's held for a very long period of time the ocean turns over on the order of millennia which is kind of random really like you, you don't really i don't consciously think of the ocean turning over on millennial timescales, I would have thought it would be a lot quicker than that, but apparently the deep waters take, you know, millennia to come back up, which is quite remarkable, isn't it? It's like the Vikings were marauding Lindisfarne when that, that bit of water was last in contact with the atmosphere. It's kind of remarkable, really. Yeah. I love Earth science. It's fascinating stuff. Okay. That's quite interesting. Um, there's... You sound very enthusiastic about that. No, no, I, I am enthusiastic. Um, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I'm enthusiastic. I'm sorry if I was moving on too quickly. Um, but, um, you know, if you want a reference to that paper, I think it was David Keith and it was definitely David Keith. And I think it was a lady called Claire Zabel, Z-A-B-E-L, um, who did that original, made that original point about carbon dioxide um this dissolution under solar geoengineering but there's more to it than that actually because um the carbon impacts of solar geoengineering are really significant um and i think from what i recall the main effect is compared to a a world without global warming compared to one with global warming and solar geoengineering so similar temperature but global warming in one and solar geoengineering is that you get a massive greening effect because the plants like the carbon dioxide and so they grow more and the plants grow in drier areas because they don't have to open their stoma or stomata or whatever they're called to let the carbon dioxide in. A stoma is like uh, when you've had a crostum, isn't it? Is yes, right? I think it's stomata. Um, yeah, 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 so it's stomata. And then, um, uh, so they don't, they don't use as much water and so plants can grow in drier areas, right? So that's, um, that's a kind of cool, interesting earth science quirk uh that greening effect um and you can play with that with solar geoengineering and optimize it to get you know more bang for your buck when it comes to the, the sort of downstream effects of solar geoengineering on stuff beyond the temperature directly right um obviously it doesn't cause the carbon dioxide to be increased but you have to look at the world as a whole when you do that analysis yeah but anyway you were just about to go on something else and i no, stole I'm your thunder now about something and i i wanted to ask you do you think that we're getting to the point where I mean, things is all modeling, isn't it? And I'm going to talk to Matthew Watson about this um, in the next day or so uh, about. Well, that's, that's Janie Flegel's thing, isn't it? And she's really big into the sort of whole modeling dilemma of, you know, whether yeah. models are real or not. What she was, do you think that it's, it's hubristic or do you think that, you know, in short order, we could get to the stage where they could do um, SRM that would be kind of adjustable well, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, we've had um, uh, a couple of people on talking about algorithms. Um, 
Well, yeah, uh, I, I know, but there's, there's still modelling. I'm just saying that, you know, are we, are we yeah, just modeling, but, be, yeah, being but, simplistic about the sort of the global... Well, I don't think so. I think the models are, you know, I, I've got broadly speaking a bit of confidence. I think that where the real big gaps in the modelling are is in delivery. That's an engineering problem, isn't it? I think it's just the effect. Oh, no, it's not just an engineering problem because it's where, where, you, where you deliver it to. Right, so the, it, it, yeah, but I, I really, really get some of my nerves when people like, talk dismissively about engineering problems because like, they're really difficult to solve. It's not just like, just right. now it's the trivial grease monkeys. Yeah. We'll deal with it. The problem, said, you, the, the problem you've got... are a different question to the delivery. It's no, it's not. Let me explain why that's wrong because it's really annoying when people get this wrong. This work is... Um, Sebastian Eastham's work, and he's looking at subgrid scale effects in climate models. The problem, the, the, the thing is, like, if you release so, sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere, then it converts into aerosols. But the process by which it does it is not optimal for getting the aerosols to be the right size for what you want for the radiative effect. So you end up with putting too much material in, and, and, and they don't last long enough, and generally they're a bit of a nuisance. Falls too quickly. Well, they, they fall too quickly, and the, the surface area that you want your if your solar if your um, aerosols aren't optimal, then they do more damage to ozone than they need to because they're not optically optimal for them for the material you put in. And well, so you've got. That. Pardon? I understand that. And my question yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, but uh, let me explain Sebastian Easton's work. So the, the issue is that by putting in, um, uh, I think there's a, a guy called English who I've never met, but. Um, he, he proposed squirting boiling sulfuric acid out the back of airliners or uh, delivery aircraft, right? And it condenses a bit like the steam off your shower, right? Um, and so you get this vapor trail or probably more accurately steam off your kettle. Um, and so you get this vapor trail, which is, if you adjust it, it gives you exactly the right size droplets, right? And that's all quite old hat. But the, the, the thing that's weird and difficult and interesting about this is that the um, you, to go obviously the climate models work on um, really big scale, right? Because you've got to get the whole planet. And um, like the, there's a lot of singing and dancing at the moment because people have got to a kilometre scale climate model, which is amazing because obviously there's a lot of kilometres to get around the world. And so that's a lot of commute that you've got to do to get that model to work, right? But the size of a plume coming out the back of an airliner, I mean, you're, me you're measuring like a couple of meters, right? And so it's like a thousand to one scale difference. And, and there aren't models that go from a plume model, which we can model because airliners are well modeled, and we, we understand that kind of thing. And, and then we understand grid cells on climate models, but in between, we don't really get it. Um, and that Sebastian Easton's work is looking at how you go from a plume model to a grid cell model. And I don't know how far he's got. I've known him, I know he's very, very busy because I've talked to him about other projects and um, uh, they've been on hold for a long time. I, 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 ironically, um, the, uh, well, no, it's not actually, it's no more ironic than Alanis Morissette song, but um, it's still interesting. So I'm gonna talk about it. I was trying to run a climate model with him today, a chemistry climate model, um, to work on some stuff with um, the impacts of um, air quality, um, uh, BECs, uh, you know, whether plants are going to create lots of volatile organic compounds, create air pollution aerosols. Um, so, yeah, I was working with um, Sebastian Easton to do this um, 
effect to understand better the effect of bioenergy with carbon capture and storage on air quality because the plants that you grow for the becks um, are they produce um, uh, like a, a haze similar to what you get in the Smoky Mountains, which is why they've got their name um, as being Smoky Mountains. It's not actually smoke, it's monoterpenes and other volatile organic compounds come out of the plants. And we're modeling the air quality effects of this. And the computer literally caught fire uh, and ruined our experiment. Um, I don't quite understand how that happened. We burned all, we burned all our results, which is, is a bit annoying. I think we had some very expensive computer time and it all basically went up in smoke. Um, so that was the end of that. So, yeah, there's a couple of things I want to get off my chest. I'm going to take them completely out of the running order because they're top of mind. So, firstly, it's Carbon Engineering's birthday today or near or thereabouts or something. Uh, 11, they are, apparently. Um, I went to see them before they were cool. Uh, I remember going up to, when they were up near Banff, where... David Keith is up in Calgary before he was at Harvard. I think he's still at Calgary. It's nice being a professor. You get to have two jobs um, in two different institutions in two different countries, and, and no one seems to care. Um, and um, oh, they're certainly still at Calgary. But I went to see their plant when it was uh, very uh, Heath Robinson and small, and they didn't have loads and loads of money from Oxy and um, uh, Pale Blue Dot and all of the other people that have partnered up with them or funded them. Um, so happy birthday, Car Carbon Engineering. The other thing is a really cool paper that came out, and I can't remember who it's by, and if you've got any decent notes, you can tell people who it's by. And this is about experience curves. And somebody tried, I've got some work coming out on this, not directly this bit of experience curves, but um, experience curves generally. So you get things like solar, where there's a really steep learning rate, and solar gets really, really cheap really, really quickly. And other things like, for example, central heating boilers, don't get that much cheap that quickly. And the, um, the idea of this paper was to work out why some things get cheap quickly and why some things don't get cheap. And it I came down to... I think this is, is this the granular technologies to accelerate decarbonisation? It might well be, but I'm not sure. Um, it's, got, it's got a pretty multicoloured graph on the front of it. You, you, you've, you've tweeted it and said that it was a super important lesson for direct air capture because if it's not yes. standardised, it ain't going to be cheap. Yes, it's this one. It's, it's, it is. Uh, it's in science. It's the 3rd of April. Who's the, who wrote it? Well, well, while you're looking up the authors, I'll tell everybody what it's about. So the, the idea being that you can, from first principles, start to predict why some things become cheap and other things don't become cheap as quickly which is really, really, really important for direct air capture because obviously it's a potentially transformational technology in terms of both making um, e-fuels and storing carbon dioxide in holes in the ground. Um, and the speed at which it will get cheap is both the subject of debate and also critical to understanding how uh, the global economy might interface with direct air capture in the future. And this paper to a large extent, seems to endorse what I've been saying about that for a long time, which is firstly, instead of trying to make a big factory, um, because you get money. Um, and the second thing is you need to... So the, the thing that makes, uh, or could make direct air capture cheap is making sure that it is made in a non-customized way. So like a car factory where all cars come off and they're all the same, or for that matter, a yogurt, a yogurt factory, right? Um, and 
that that repetition gives huge economies of scale which drive down price and the other thing that drives down price is a lack of complexity so if you think of things like for example a bic biro ubiquitous cheap world beating product very very simple very few components in it highly standardized and it gets to the point where it's you know a throwaway where you know you could conceivably have paid 150 pounds for a good fountain pen and it frankly doesn't write a lot better than a 10p bic so they're probably not 10p anymore but they were when i used to buy them in bulk when back in the days when you had to write things down but but that 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 simplicity and lack of customization is what results in low prices so if we're going to do that with direct air capture we need a simple process not a complicated process and we need a lack of customization so I, when i went to climbworks i said to them you know like i think you should containerize this and then you can rely on that um the standardization to drive down your costs of building this equipment and um also to uh enable you to simplify your logistics because every time something breaks in the field you just drag it back um the other thing that i think is really interesting i had a conversation with um david keith uh about um on twitter about um the technology behind the direct air capture plant and the there's broadly speaking three or four fundamental chemistry so you've got carbon engineering which is a calcining high temperature process so you're basically taking limestone and then burning the carbon dioxide off it um you've got the climbworks process which is about heating um amines but a much much lower temperature so um that's about um you know steam temperature as opposed to furnace temperature and then you've got a couple of others um like klaus lackner's one which relies on um humidity swing and then you've got the one that i really really like which is the electro swing technology you basically apply a voltage to a material sucks carbon out of the air and then when you take that voltage off the carbon gets released now i love that because it's inherently it's like a solid state technology inherently very simple if you can find a way to make those chemicals very cheaply it's something which very very much lends itself to this standardization approach the simple small modular scalable technology approach so you know i've got a lot of hope for electro swing um and I, I can really see it driving down the cost curve in a way that perhaps is more difficult for the more chemical engineering type approach of carbon engineering to be um, competitive on costs in the long run. So fascinating paper and perhaps worth doing a deep dive on that. What do you reckon? Yeah, I think so. Look, there's, a, there's, a, there's a kind of sort of linked uh, paper to do with this as well. And that, um, somebody's done a paper by somebody called Jewel. Uh, the, the journal's called Jewel. Yeah, the, sorry, the journal's called Jewel. It's by um, Abhishek Malotra and Tobias Schmidt. And they're basically saying that policymaker, the Paris Agreement basically is, is, it focuses on green industrial policy that only suits a certain type of innovation of certain types of technology. And so to improve the, the, you know, the use and the, the take-up and the, the, the NDCs, we need to basically change some of the policy so that um, other low-carbon technologies that aren't of a certain... Don't type. give us an acronym, Claire. What, that's a nationally determined contribution, isn't it? Yes, yes. What's an NDC? Yeah, nationally, nationally determined, determined contribution. Yeah. So that's the individually decided commitments that each of the nations have decided to, to declare at Paris, which at COP26 next year, they will be updating in a ratchet up uh, process. Um, so, but at the moment, we're, we're heading for three degrees at least, so... 
people possibly it depends on this pace of technological innovation it depends so you know this paper is basically saying that Paris Agreement needs to sort of switch a little bit and include some different kinds of uh, incentives for other kinds of green technology to help what us. kinds of technology were they asking um, for incentives for I think it's behind a paywall so I didn't see it bloody paywalls talking yeah. of paywalls sad news not not new news um, but uh, John Tennant um, who tweets under, or tweeted under the um, uh, brand of um, or the, the handle of proto hedgehog so I was quite liked um, he was a, a really good egg and I liked him and he's very nice to me on Twitter and I discovered today after a long period of silence that he had in fact died in a car crash this spring so oh, 2020 doing its thing and that's uh, if you if you follow open access and um, all the issues associated with it. He was a, yeah, so uh, John Tennant was a firebrand uh, who was a leading advocate for open access to science. Sad news indeed, but um, uh, I'm sure his work and his movement will continue. Getting rid of these bloody paywalls that stop us giving you accurate information about the papers that your taxes have paid to write. Um, <laughs> and hopefully his movement will live on after he has sadly and very very prematurely left us at the age of only 31 in a road traffic accident so that is um that is a, a salutary lesson um really unfortunate okay um very uh, very unfortunate one more thing left on here and that is the happy news i think that uh as everyone was bleating about it quite rightly that today the um European Parliament decided to reaffirm the commitment to reduce greenhouse gases by the EU by 60% by 2030 without relying on carbon removal. So they've brought back the honesty, I think, is the general overview to the green EU Green Deal. Yeah, I have. Um, I mean, I'm always happy to have a squabble with people who go on about offsets and forestry, carbon dioxide removal and all of that other nonsense, because it's not that it can't work and restoring forests is a, you know, a lovely thing and it's great, great for bats and bugs and beetles and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, it's just so, it's just a fraudster's paradise, isn't it? It's just a way of trying to, it's so open to abuse and trying to convince people that you have removed carbon dioxide when really you haven't done anything of the sort. Or if you have, it's extremely temporary and goes up um, in a puff of smoke uh, the next time you get a wildfire. So... Um, very glad that we're actually not getting sucked into that nonsense. Yeah, um, I, I agree because carbon sinks are ultimately manipulable. They're like they're like financial accountings. It's a snapshot and it's kind of made of all sorts of assumptions. It's not mathematical. It's full of value judgments and guesses and wishful thinking. And I don't think we need it in this kind of area at all. I can find yeah, another one to manipulate. Could not agree more. I'm no no fan of that whatsoever. Oh, on that on that happy note. Um, well, we, we didn't sound very happy about it. We should be a lot oh, more cheery. We should have, a, we should have a, car, a carbon removal song to finish up with, but we haven't, we haven't <laughs> written one. For the European Parliament. I keep nagging Claire to have a jingle. We've got to have a production meeting exactly. inside the podcast. It's a tradition. Yes. But I have, if anyone, if anyone would like to compose a jingle for our podcast, then please do get in touch because we need a jingle, uh, a bit of branding. Um, I've got an idea in my head for what geoengineering music might sound like, but um, I, I've never composed a piece of music in my life. I'm not sure I'm actually capable of communicating the idea. Um, so if you are capable of writing a geoengineering jingle or encouraging somebody else to do so, then do get in touch with us. Uh, can you remind the good audience of the handle, Twitter handle that I have forgotten? 
it's uh, reviewer two geo. Thank you. I was I start typing it and my keyboard fills it in itself, so I never have to learn whether it's rev two geo or reviewer two geo or whatever, whatever. But it, apparently it's reviewer two geo, which is good. So anything else, or are we going to bid you all farewell um, and um, let you go back to saving the world um, before we distract you for another? Half an hour, 40 minutes in a week's time with some uh, more newsy nonsense and bam. That's us. We're done. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening.